Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a murdery thingy 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 <laughs> hey, happy Wednesday Happy Wednesday. Wednesday Two weeks after the Wednesday that we last talked to you Go team. Oh uh, Welcome to Mystery Murdery welcome Thingy Mystery as well Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy My name is Chloe My name is Mario And Welcome to the podcasting closet Yes, yes. that is correct um, uh, We're here to talk about mystery And lots of fucking murder jesus christ and thingies yeah i mine's very murdery yours is very murdery this week yes i've got a good in we're both gonna be Uh, yes good one kind of crazy ones so i will start as we talked about earlier mario's on the second part of his two-parter and i'm on the first part of my (laughs) two-parter we've always got it like it seems like at least one two-parter going right i know i know it's funny so yes i am continuing the theme from last week um taking you know y'all through some um uh, murder in alaska and this is one that's widely considered the worst mass murder in the history of alaska at least in modern times right um there was a so it's this all kind of happens in this small fishing town called craig alaska um which is situated in um sort of the southern archipelago of, of Alaska, right, between Seattle to the south and Anchorage to the north, sort of along the side of British Columbia, right? Just so you're kind of, that's where we're talking about. And this was back in the early 80s, specifically September 1982, just at the end of the fishing season, like the last day. And, um, you know, Craig, Alaska, it's, like I said, a little kind of fishing village, um, and it's one of those places, I'm You've probably been to these places, like, off-season and on-season, right? It's, like, totally different. So, when the fishing season is there, you know, it's there's just, There's a lot like, of people. Lots of people. When it's not the, se- the season, there's, like, 500 permanent residents. And it's also one of those places you can, like, only get there by, like, plane or boat. Mm. You know? It's, like, one of those as well. Um, so, yeah. Normally, they have, like, one state trooper, like, a few cops. You know, that's it. Um, you know, little police department, you know, three bars, of course, um, a restaurant, you know, a church. It's like a little, little tiny town. Um, but, you know, during the fishing season, they sometimes have their hands pretty full, uh, the cops do, with a lot of drunks, rowdy people, fishermen, getting in lots of fights. Apparently, there's like nothing else to do except to get real I mean... drunk. So, yeah, it makes sense, right? And on September 5th of 1982, um, fisherman Mark Colthurst and his family were enjoying a dinner at the uh, local mainstay restaurant, Ruth Ann's, which unfortunately burnt, actually burned down in 2015, but um, for decades was like the restaurant, right, in Craig. 
And it was uh, not only the end of the fishing season, right? A very strenuous, you know, months-long fishing season that they had been on that they were celebrating the end of. It was also Mark's 28th birthday. And then, tragically, this would be the last time that he, his family, and four of the remaining crew members would be seen alive. Mm. Mark and his wife, Irene, had been high school sweethearts, uh, been together since they were teenagers. Um, and she was there supporting him, like, all the way along his uh, sort of rise in the fishing world. And and he was kind of an up-and-comer, right? Um, his rise had not been without struggle, of course. He'd had, you know, failures, and, and he had to work real fucking hard. Um, but it seemed that he and his, you know, little burgeoning family were finally on the precipice of that real, you know, that real success that he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, he had recently bought a modern, um, you know, kitted out $750,000 fishing vessel uh, vessel, and uh, called it the uh, Investor. Um, okay. Mark Makes had, it, and, and yeah, and he was very explicit about it. He's like, I'm calling it Investor because this is, th- this is my one, a big step on my way, but this isn't the end. You know, this is an investment. And um, he uh, had also become a little bit of a minor celebrity in the fishing world. Um, he had even been featured in a magazine earlier in the year in 1982 as an up-and-coming young, you know, um, fishing, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know fishing terms, uh, so I'm fishing, sorry. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Real good fishing guy. Um, and he famously vowed to retire by age 50. That was, like, his big thing. Like, I'm just going to work, and then I'm just going to be re- retired and living off my wealth by the time I'm 50 didn't end up coming to pass, of course, uh, um, tragically. Um, and the season of 1982 seemed to have been a pretty successful one for for Mark. Like I said, he had been... Uh, they had been con- continuously fishing for like five months, I think. And the way the, the the boat was set up, they could do different types of fishing, right? They went and, and fished for like herring, and then they did like Dungeness crab, and they had like done all this stuff, and they were finally at the end. But you know, the success, right, monetarily hadn't quite come in yet. Um, Mark was heavily in debt. You know, he had a lot of outlays that, you know, the fishing was going to cover, but he hadn't quite gotten the money yet. Um, he was a bit cash poor, one might say. Okay. Reportedly, so- he even had to borrow $100 from a friend just to afford the meal and the drinks for, for his birthday dinner that night. He was kind of waiting on profit sounds like yeah you know the way it is you you catch the fish and then you have to sell them right it's it's a process it takes time yeah but there was money coming in and according to a waitress at ruth ann's um the night was also marred by an unknown individual who arrived toward the end of the night argued with mark and then kind of left in a huff and uh, like much about this case the identity of that person and what they and mark talked about are completely unknown and this is really only coming from that waitress so really it i mean other people substantiate that some someone else was there too but it's not clear exactly what happened in any case mark irene their two kids young kids and four remaining crew members left uh the restaurant and returned to the investor about 9 30 p.m much of what happened over the next two days is again hazy but at some point all of the eight people who boarded the investor that night were killed. According to some eyewitnesses, the killer was seen to clamber onto the ship uh, late on the night of the 5th. Oh, so they actually saw somebody? like Many people saw many things, and we'll get into that. And it's it's all highly contested. 
Um, sometime later, people also reported hearing gunshots. Um, but again, other people reported hearing gunshots like the next day. That it, None of it is totally clear. One witness describes hearing a blood-curdling scream from a woman and later seeing a shadowy figure debark the investor and walk down the dock. We'll, we'll get back to that later. The next morning, in broad daylight, again, many people saw many things, the killer took the investor from the dock, and while he was moving it about a mile north to this cove, he actually waved at a passing ship captain, which is pretty crazy. Like, with eight dead bodies on the ship, he was, like, moving it from the dock, right? And while he was doing that, he saw other people and actually waved at them. So he's got some balls. It's pretty crazy. It, it, it kind of goes to, to um, profiling, right? It's what, what kind of person is that, right? Um, so anyway, they moved it to this secluded bay about a mile north um, where it lay anchored and actually shrouded in some mist that, that was shrouded. happened to be there in mist. It sounds very mysterious, <laughs> but literally it was, it was shrouded in mist. Um, the killer was seen on several other occasions as well according to witnesses, um, who saw a man using the, the skiff, um, that is the small powerboat okay. from the investor. Um, from what authorities extrapolated, uh, extrapolated later, the killer seems to have taken the ship out to the bay, um, the, the investor, and then attempted to sink it by opening these like valves um, that were down there, which implied is that they that? knew something about the ship, but it okay. didn't work. They thought it would, but it didn't. So it, it, it's interesting, right? They knew enough to know the, what those valves were, but they didn't know enough to know that it wouldn't actually sink the ship. So anyway, it's kind of weird. Okay, okay. So when, maybe... Okay, okay. Yeah, so when that wasn't successful, the killer decided to burn the ship. Um, he returned to Craig and bought gasoline from the local gas station, the one and only gas station in Craig, returned to the ship and torched it with the eight bodies decomposing on board. On the morning of September 7th of 1982, the fog around Investor was lifting, but smoke began to rise from the hull. It quickly turned from gray to black and rose miles into the sky, um, was see seen all around, and vessels quickly started flocking to the scene, um, first searching for survivors on the deck uh, or in the water, but again, there was none to find. Um, when you know, it became apparent that there there were no people around, right? They started searching for ways to put out the fire, uh, which was quickly engulfing this 50-foot-long ship. The skipper of the first ship to arrive, Casino, feared that his... It was so hot that he he feared his propane tanks that he had on, his, on board for fuel would explode if he got too close right. to the fire. Um, later, a smaller ship came and, and, and circled the ship closely to search for survivors... Um, and as the fire continued to grow, it began to melt and collapse part of the ship, um, which was mainly so, made of, um, synthetic materials. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so like fiberglass. It, it was like really, really, it was a really, really hot fire? Or? It was an extremely hot fire, yes. And do um, they know what caused it? Not exactly. I mean, obviously they did a whole arson investigation, but they, from the moment that the first officer on you know came onto the scene knew that it was arson the way that it was burning how quickly it started and how quickly it it kind of engulfed the ship and it, it was clearly um said intentionally so at the same time as the 
you know, fire was really going, right? The, um, this Alaska state trooper named Bob Anderson was on his way. He was kind of the first responding officer, um, to Craig from the nearby town of Klewak, um, to investigate the ship fire. And his first instinct was that this was a case of insurance fraud. That was what he thought first, perpetrated by, you know, some unsuccessful fisherman to recoup the losses from, you know, presumably some bad fishing season. But, um, like I said, Trooper Anderson, you know, once he got there, didn't have too much time to ponder that because he saw how quickly the fire was was kind of going, right, and tried to figure out how the hell are we going to put this out. Um, The Craig Fire Department... Um, and the Forest Service were woefully unprepared for this disaster. They um, had some pumps, but mostly they didn't work. Um, if they did work, they didn't match the hoses that they had, so weren't any good. Um, he then attempted to commandeer a boat to go and survey the scene himself, but that boat's battery was dead, so he couldn't go. I mean, this it really, it's crazy. This seems like, like, worst-case scenario, like bad luck after bad luck. Yeah, it's like a fucking Steve Martin movie, right? Yeah. So he decides, fuck it, I'm just going to take my personal boat, which luckily was docked right nearby. When um, Trooper Anderson got to the investor, the fire had intensified even more, engulfing, quote, the entire cabin, bridge, wheelhouse, and galley, as well as the seine net on the stern, close quote. And that's the, the net that they used to catch the fish, like a big, big oh, okay. net that kind of juts out from the the side, and, that, and that's according to Leland Hale from the, the book that I read. Um, and he couldn't um, really do anything about this, right? The, the, the fire was just going too much. No one could get even get close to it. So he watched and kind of pondered as the mast veered and eventually fell into the water. Um, it was event at this point, it's 5.45 p.m., and the tugboat Andy Head comes to the rescue. Um, finally, a ship with a working water pump comes, and uh, the Andy Head um, quickly puts out the fire on the same net, but the rest of it was decidedly more intractable and was not able to be put out with one water pump. What does intractable mean? Uh, it means um, uh, ardent, uh, not able to be moved. Um, in this case, not able to be extinguished, right? It, it's it's uh, the Im- immovable uh, force of, of that fire, you know? Eventually, the Coast Guard airlifted pumps in um, from Ketchikan, I believe. Oh, wow. uh, From, you know, like 50 miles away. Another tugboat, the Spruce, attempted to douse the fire by rolling the investor on its side. Uh, Bravely, the the captain of the Spruce decided he was going to, like, essentially, like, push his ship onto this burning ship to push it over so it goes into the water, which is crazy. I mean, Jesus, but... um, it, they were fine. Nothing happened to them, but it, it also didn't work. Um, but it did push the investor closer to the shore. And eventually, when the tide came in, it actually grounded the investor. The turning point in putting out the fire was the arrival of more pumps uh, from the Coast Guard at about 7.30 p.m. These were quickly attached to Andy Head, and the fire was put out for the most part. Uh, at least enough for Trooper Anderson to start really getting close enough to investigate the scene in earnest. And what he saw was essentially a smoldering stack of fiberglass sheets that had collapsed and melted on top of one another. It was it was a mess, as much of a mess as you can possibly imagine. Um, at 8 p.m., Trooper Anderson began combing through the material by hand, 
and some other um, um, uh, volunteers as well with wearing heavy gloves and boots, as you can imagine. I was going to say, that sounds super dangerous. It's very dangerous. And, and actually, the fire um, flared up again while they were on the ship. And they had to get um, uh, the, some sort of like foam, like firefighting foam, uh, to r- actually finally really put it out, like for good, uh, which is crazy. Um, most of the ship, um, you know, was was just like I said, this this kind of carnage wreck. Um, eventually, within that wreck, they did discover tragically human remains. Um, most of the remains was burned past the point of recognition um some some of it was not recognizably human other than the fact that it was it was apparent right Mm. and then some of the other bodies were more or less burned um you know and you really obviously in a moment like that i mean what do you what do you say like you find all of these you know horrible eight that's what would be established eventually, but even that um, is fairly contested um, for a long time. Um, just how many bodies, you know, the burned human remains represented would actually remain a matter of controversy for many years and become a big sticking point in um, at least the first trial, as we'll eventually get to. So eventually the families of the victims would be asked to submit dental records so that they could be um, identified from the teeth that were recovered from the burnt wreck of the investor. So it, it, it really got to that point. Yeah, I know, it just turns your stomach. Um, after night fell in earnest, uh, Trooper Anderson called off the search for that first night and started to go home exhausted. I, I mean, mean yeah. Y- yeah, understandably. He was interrupted, though, by a policeman telling him that they had found another eyewitness who was leaving town in the morning to go to college and had to talk to them, like, right then. And this was, like, 1230 at night when this was happening. Okay. So, according to, again, Leland Hale, the witness told the investigators the following, quote, The fire had just been announced, and it seemed like everyone was headed out toward the fire, except this skiff. The skiff was headed in the opposite direction toward the dock, and the guy in it seemed like he could care less about the fire. Close quote. Um, that witness also told them what the skiff operator looked like, of course, because they were very close. They were within like 10 feet of each other or something. Um, and what he said was a description that would echo in a lot of other eyewitness testimony. A young, white, you know, late teens, early 20s, white man with blonde or brown hair wearing a baseball cap, uh, blue or green. Sketchy. Um, and some people say he, he did look pretty sketchy. Like, he, he looked like he, you know, was rather disheveled. Other people said the opposite. Again, it's, and you'll find this with all eyewitness testimony. If you get two people to look at the same exact thing at the same exact time, they're not going to give you the same description right. of it. And that's that's not even what this is, right? Um, so anyway, in in the eventual trials that would ensue, you know, over the many years uh, following this, the eyewitness testimony of uh, one Sue Domanowski would would also become critical. She claimed to have actually spoken to the skiff operator just as he arrived from the investor at the cannery. Um, after the fire. According to Sue, he offered her the use of the skiff to go out to the fire, which struck her very oddly, as you can imagine. Um, She said that he appeared to be in shock and and generally gave the same description. Trooper Anderson also spoke to um, Jim, a man named Jim Robinson, uh, the owner of Craig Auto, which is that one um, uh, uh, gas station in town. 
um, and he, and uh, where, where the you know presumed killer had gotten the gasoline just to light the the ship on fire, right? And he said he remembered the young man vaguely and did point out his blue baseball cap. Jim Robinson um, is also going to come back in pretty sensational fashion in in the trial, as we'll get to. Um, one witness uh, description of the skipper op- operator didn't match the others, but just one. That one person described him as a native Alaskan and older, like a man in his like middle age. Um, but otherwise, everyone pretty much said the same. The one suspect that arose from the initial investigation and the one that the authorities would eventually come back to was John Peel, uh, the only real named suspect of any significance in this case. Um, he was picked out by some witnesses as matching their recollection of the skiff operator um, and and in like photo lineups and different things, although a lot of that is also contested and, and you know, not entirely clear. Yeah, we've we've had this whole eyewitness yeah, exactly. conversation. Yeah, eyewitness testimony is not dispositive of anything, almost any at any time. Um and in fact one man, um fat Charlie Clark, um, who had seen the skiff operator said when police specifically asked him, like pointed and said, That's is that the man you saw? And they were pointing to John Peel said that, no, he knows John Peel personally, okay. and that was not the skiff operator. Um, but even that testimony would, would become contested later, too. It's all a mess. Despite um, the, you know, sort of ne- negative, you know, uh, identification of uh, Fat Charlie, the investigators uh, decided that they liked, quote-unquote, liked John Peel for the crime, right? He was the one like, they were sort of honing in on. I don't like that word. Yeah, I know it's weird when they say that. I like that, but it, him. I know, it's it's funny. Do you like me, yes or no? Um, he generally matched the description of the unsub, and he knew the investor crew. Um, he knew, like, all of them personally. Um, he had actually crewed under Mark Colthurst before, and had even dated briefly one of Mark's relatives. Um, John Peel may or may not also have been supplying cannabis to a couple of the investor crew. The devil's lettuce. Right. Um, after additional investigation on board the ship and medical examination, and the, the dental records, etc., it was determined for certain that at least seven people had died on board the investor. Wow. And the the victims at that time that they were, you know, clearly able to establish were Mark and Irene Colthurst, both 28, their children, Kimberly, 5, and John, 4, and their four crewmen remaining on the ship, Chris Heyman, 18, Jerome Keown, 19, and Mike Stewart, also 19. Why? And it couldn't be established whether Dean Moon, the other um, crew member's body, was present or not. There just wasn't... The, the remains were too dispersed. They, they couldn't find anything that definitively told them that um, Dean Moon, like, was on the ship. His... I'm confused. His kids were on the ship? Yeah, his wife and kids were both on the ship. Oh, so they all... Okay. Yeah, there were, were eight people, you know. Do you think... I mean, keep going, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, this sort of mystery within the mystery, right, of whether Dean Moon was killed that night would, would linger on for some time and um, would, would come to, to, you know, shadow the first trial at least. And over the next year, much would remain mysterious as investigators fielded hundreds of calls and tips. Um, they they tracked down these tips as far away as Indiana. Um, you know, they talked to, you know, almost a thousand people 
but it did not yield any immediate results. They were still considering the possibility that Dean Moon could have been murdered, uh, or could have been the murderer, sorry, um, but but that he had not yet surfaced, right? Um, they were still considering that to be a possibility, but um, they, you know, they really weren't sure. Investigators also fielded tips about possible a possible drug angle to the crimes, um, which was a theme that would would continue to come back in the trials, but um. but nothing was ever proven really. Um, by March of 1984, the authorities had cycled back to their original suspect, John Peel. Um, they were never able to clearly say why he would have done it, like ever. No. But there's there was never any clear motive. Um, but from then on, the Alaska police and prosecutors were convinced that John Peel was their man. Over the next several years, John Peel would be indicted and tried twice. Each. Indicted twice, tried twice. Um, from the beginning, John has professed his innocence. And in addition to having no clear motive to kill his former boss right. and seven other people, he also claimed to have an alibi. He told police he was with his girlfriend the night of the murder. With little physical evidence to go on, police um, stringently attempted to get a confession, but they were unsuccessful. And eventually John asked for a lawyer. And eventually he brought in a really good defense lawyer named Philip Widener, um, a larger-than-life figure who um, would mount a more than vigorous defense of John over the uh, ensuing years, trials, etc. Um, and Widener's first legal victory for John came early. The initial indictment was dismissed by the judge, but only on narrow technical grounds. Uh, quickly, they obtained a second indictment, which stuck, and John was arrested and tried. Yeah. You said judge, so was it a jury trial? It was a jury it trial. It was a jury yeah, trial? Yeah, good, good question. At that time, it could, in Alaska, it could have been a jury trial or a judge trial, but it was a jury trial. Um, I believe now, because of Supreme Court precedent, you have to have a jury trial for a murder case, but I'm not totally sure. Widener um, mm -hmm. and prosecuting attorney Marianne Henry over the two trials that followed, would um, violently and continually battle with each other. Like, it was crazy. From their first opening statements to the close of the second trial, they would object, inveigh, question each other's integrity and intelligence and motives and um, everything else. And eventually, they would both pay restitution for disobeying some of the innumerable orders handed down by by each of the two judges in these cases. Oh, wow. So it was like, ooh, it seems and really intense. It was super intense. It, I, it, it was just crazy. And I would, I would tr love, truly love to detail every single part of that insanity for you, but I, we would be here for hours. We'll talk later. Read Leland, ha Leland Hale's book. I'm going to go over it in my sources at the end for the full details. And there are lots of them. And he, he does a great job of writing uh, about them. But I, I think I can best encapsulate the way um, that, that this kind of unfolded by the fact that the judge in the second trial literally went gray during the proceedings. And he was only 45. And it, yeah, his hair turned gray during this trial. And it's not, I think, a coincidence. <laughs> That's the second trial, which was shorter. The first trial went on for eight grueling months. The longest yes. trial in Alaskan history up to that point. Dozens of witnesses for each side appeared. And hundreds of exhibits were made. Now, for all of that, there were many unresolved questions at the end uh, of of the 
you know, when they both uh, rested, the defense had described, um, sorry, the prosecution had described a motive speculating that John had been resentful of Mark's success and peeved that he had been fired by Mark, which John Peel said didn't actually happen. Um, but it was never proved. It, it was never very well defined. Like the whole notion of that's maybe was the weakest part of their case was the fact that their motive was purely speculation. Whether Dean Moon lived or not had also not been clearly established even at that time. And this was two years later. They still didn't know if Dean Moon had died that night or not. Whether Mark Colthurst was involved in drug dealing um, was also very much contested. The The defense, um, and this was a lot of the orders the judge made to tell him like not to talk about this, and then Widener would just talk about it or find uh, other ways of bringing it is up. Is that legal? Can you get in trouble? You can get in trouble. Oh, yeah. That, right? no, he, yeah he, was, he was always getting in trouble during this trial. The, the judge was constantly bringing them up to the bench. They would go back to his chambers. They would fight about things. He would be like, okay, don't do it again. Like, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's one part, like, end of a chapter in, in the Leland Hale book where he's like, and the judge finally lost all control over the trial. <laughs> like, oh it was nuts. Um, and although, um, there was never any solid evidence of this whole drug angle, right? Other than some testimony from some jailhouse snitches, but it, it kept, it kept coming up in different ways. So in the end, the eyewitness testimony, of course, was key and few more so than that of Larry Demmer. Larry was terrified to testify at trial, which he said had caused him to develop a dependence on Valium, uh, oh, since, since then. Yeah. Larry was the eyewitness that I mentioned at the beginning, who said that he had seen that shadowy figure go on to and off of the investor and heard the scream. And he claims also that he recognized John Peel as that silhouetted figure. Now, not by seeing his face, but just by recognizing his shape, his mannerisms. Yeah, you you, you can see how Philip Widener would, like, pick this apart on... You know, uh, um, when when uh, Larry Demmer was up on the on the stand, um, uh, now John P or um, Larry Demmer rather also claimed to have clearly seen John walking along the dock with a rifle in his hand, and that that was through the whole trial the the one and most definitive you know time someone was like I am positive it was John Peel. You said there were they were burned beyond recognition. Was there any gunshot wounds? Do they? Yes, there were. Oh. That's a good question. There were some that that did have visible gunshot wounds. Um, because there, there were some bodies that were in a part of the ship that didn't get burned as as much. Okay. So they do know that, and they recovered um, some shells as well. But they were never able to. That's a good question. They were never able to clearly establish what the gun was. They think it was okay. a twenty two caliber rifle, and they think that it was the gun that. Mark had on the ship because he kept a gun on the ship, but they don't know that for sure. They don't. They don't know for sure what gun it was. Um. So anyway, um, the uh, uh, defense attorney Widener also sought to discredit Larry Demmer because of his dependence on Valium yeah. and and uh, just generally tried to like you know paint him as unbelievable. Um, most of the other eyewitnesses, all of the other eyewitnesses, were not as sure you know, that it was John Peel. Um, they would say a lot of things like, well, it, it he it definitely looks like him. Like, he looks like him. It was, okay. But they never said, like, yes, that is the man. Um, crucially, Sue Dominowski, the woman who spoke to the skiff operator, 
again, she was like that. She was like, she was pretty sure it was John Peel, but she was never willing to make that clear, positive identification. And you said only one person at one time was really, like, sure? Right, exactly. And that was Larry Demert saying, you know, I saw John Peel. I was, you know, this far away from him. He was standing under a light. I was looking through the porthole. I saw him on the dock with a gun in his hand, you know, just after the killings happened. But again, that's, do you believe Larry Demert or not? That's, I mean, this whole case kind of comes down to, do you believe Larry Demert or not? Um, so the defense's main strategy, other than discrediting him and the other prosecution witnesses, was to establish that John Peel had a solid, solid alibi. Not the right. one he had initially told the police. That one was a lie. He admitted that. But he said the only reason, according to Widener, that John Peel had lied about that was that his actual alibi was that he was selling someone weed at the time, which he didn't want to admit to the police. Um, Furthermore, the defense produced witnesses that said um, that they saw John at a bank just after the fire started. And there was also a call that John had made um, at a time that the defense... um, uh, claims, it means it would have been impossible for him to have been the one who set the fire, and therefore the one who was the killer, right? Because again, the fire happened two days after the killings happened. As with everything, the timelines were not clear. Um, If you believe the defense, then yes, it was impossible. It's this impossibility defense, right? He could not have been there. But the, the prosecution says, well, but the timeline could have been this, and this person might have been mistaken. So, anyway... Yeah, it seems like it all tends to fall apart when it comes to the eyewitnesses. Right. Like, it's... That's why the timeline seems so, like, or if this person was wrong, then it could be this. Exactly. And, um, there was also this whole, um, sort of issue around, uh, quote-unquote Jim Robinson, the owner of the uh, gas station that I had mentioned earlier. Now I say quote-unquote because, um, it became clear that Jim Robinson was not Jim Robinson. That was a pseudonym. That, um, in fact, the man claiming to be Jim Robinson was a different person who had changed his name to escape justice in Arizona, where he had skipped out on a work camp while serving a sentence for firebombing a car several years earlier. After closing statements, um, and and so that was just another crazy thing that happened during the trial, right? So anyway, after those eight months had elapsed, right, we're at the closing statements. Even those spanned a few days just for the closing statements. The jury finally began deliberating on August 23rd of 1986, nearly four years after the crimes had occurred. uh, Crimes had occurred. On the sixth day of deliberation, the jury advised the judge that they were at an impasse. Um, After speaking with the foreperson, the judge said, Yes, I agree. You're not going to be able to come to a decision and declared a mistrial, dismissed the jury. Obviously, no one was satisfied with this, right? The I state, mean, um, yeah. you know, not the, the, the defense, no one, right? But after some prevaricating and, um, you know, some uh, po- political maneuverings, the state decided to pursue a second trial. After it was discovered that um, defense counsel Widener had been dating one of the law clerks of the oh. first judge, oh, the prosecution suggested. Mistrial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the mistrial had already happened, but what that um, would happen because of that was the prosecution successfully got another judge to say that the original judge was now disqualified, and they had to get another judge to see to hear the case, and they actually moved to a new venue as well. 
I think the first trial was in Ketchikan, and the second trial was in Juneau. This is wild. Yeah, this is a crazy story. So, the second trial was no less contentious than the first, but it was a lot shorter. This was partly because the prosecution streamlined their case. Um, they called fewer witnesses, um, they had fewer exhibits, things of that nature. But it's also because the defense did not call any witnesses. When the prosecution was done with their case, um, Philip Widener simply stated, quote, based upon the state of the evidence and the burden of proof, the defendant rests his case, close quote. Just felt like we don't even need to do anything. Um, at 3.34 p.m. on the fourth day of deliberations for the second trial, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict. And about an hour later, the world would learn that John Peel had been acquitted on all counts, found not guilty. There's just too much doubt. Yeah. There was, in the minds of these people, there there simply was reasonable doubt, you know. Widener's um, instinct, the, the defense attorney's instinct that the prosecution had not proved their case was correct. In the minds of, you know, the, the, the jury, they had simply not proven their case against like this person. so many questions. And, you know, some of the jurors say... My instinct was he was guilty, but the judge told us you you're not allowed to go on your instinct. You I mean, ha you have to consider the evidence. Exactly. And does the evidence as it's presented prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the only thing you can consider. Right. And they said when you really looked at it, no. Right. It it just didn't. I've seen twelve angry men. I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, but it wasn't even that in this case. You know they say that it started out like eight to four, not guilty, and then they convinced the other people. Um, so, yeah, um, the, the jurors just weren't, and, and yeah, I think especially to convict him for, like, this super heinous crime for which you're going go to go to jail for the rest of your yeah, life. you can't, you know, yeah, yeah. Have, if it's gonna, if it's something like that, you gotta be sure. And it was all just circumstantial, and some of it, like I said, like, for, and for the second trial, Mary and Henry actually just flat out admitted, like, we do not know what what the uh, motive was. Like, we are not going to establish motive, which obviously hurts your case. If you have to just come out flatly and say, like, one of the three pillars of, like, you know, that everyone knows of, of how to prove a case, like, we're just going to ignore one of them. And then the other two were, like, only sort of, you know, giving you evidence to, to substantiate. Um, obviously, some victims' families remained and remain convinced that John was the true killer, but some others don't. There were actually a couple that met with John Peel many, many years later and were convinced that he was not the killer after speaking to him. Prosecuting attorney Marianne Henry, of course, remained until, you know, the day of her death, fervently convinced that the jury got it wrong. Um, this single-minded focus on John Peel... Um, you know, from, from beginning to way after the end, um, may also have hurt the prosecutor's case, as some jurors also said that they were convinced by the defense's argument that investigators simply had blinders on from the start. And and especially, there, I think there was a tape of some of the um, initial, um, um, what do you call it, um, when interviews? they took when, when the yeah interviews or whatever you know interrogation in the interrogation exactly with John Peel and they listened to that and they said that for some of them that's what convinced them they listened to it and they said no they're just trying to bully him into con into confessing like he I I believe huh. him I believe that he when he said said he's not guilty so yeah they they just were they just didn't get rid of the doubt there was still too much doubt 
So, um, as sort of a p- p- postlog, the vigorous defense of uh, John from Philip Widener continued after the acquittal, even. He continued to represent John and attempted to pry a $177 million restitution from the state of Alaska. Oh. Um, I think $100 million of it was specifically for John. Um, in the end, John would get $900,000 um, from the state of Alaska as, as restitution for, you know, whatever, for all of this, um, 15 years after the crimes in, in the fall of 1997. And that was sort of the end of it. And it was truly the end of it, because the state of Alaska officially closed the case with the theory that John Peel was indeed the killer and was just not found guilty of the crime. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and so, it's, I mean, Widener definitely, to, to him, like Henry, you know, uh, these some of these other people, to him it was actually misconduct that they would go before, you know, the public and say like, well, the jury got it wrong. We still think he's guilty. I mean, is that really what we want prosecutors to be doing? It it does seem like no. Is that is that considered misconduct? Like really? Mm, I don't think so. Not actionable. But I mean, I think you could consider it inappropriate. Not that makes sense. Um, the state of Alaska, like I said, officially closed the case. Of course, John Peel continues to profess his innocence and the hope that the true killer will be found so that he can be fully vindicated. Of course, we don't know. Um, here at Mystery Murdery Thingy, we don't take a position on our mysteries. We That's talked about point. doing that. We, we, at, at, when we were first formulating the pod, we talked about doing that. But uh, that is the point. We, we embrace the mystery, and I think this one, is, it's very mysterious. I certainly, if I were on that jury, I'd have a pretty hard time convicting him as well, I think. Dude, that was rough. Yeah, that's a crazy one. I mean, when, when they say it's, you know, the, you know, sort of most heinous Alaska's worst unsolved mass murder, as it says here on this on the book, right? So my sources, um, to get to that, of course, What Happened in Craig, the book by Leland E. Hale, um, also um, from 2018, also Johnny Dodd and Adam Carlson at People, Megan Heinz at In Touch, and the Craig Alaska page on Wikipedia. 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 Okay. And uh, that's my story for this two weeks. And oh. I think that's going to be the end of my Alaska, murder in Alaska. I'll find, find something else to do next time. Chloe? <laughs> uh, Chloe? Over to you. So, I am... This is my... This is part one of two. Of the murder of Atalia Ponsel Lindsay. No, it's not Italia. It's Athalia. Sorry, I'm learning. Okay, so Athalia, Athalia Ponzo Lindsay. She was born in Toledo, Ohio. Um, so she was she was raised by wealthy parents in the Isle of Pines, Cuba, in 1917. So she was somebody who grew up wealthy. Um, was always living a uh, a luxurious lifestyle. And I just want to point out, this is a a very brutal murder. Murder. Quite yeah. brutal. A crime of passion, I would say. This episode is not for the faint of heart. Not for the faint of heart. So she um, was raised in, in the Isle of Pines, Cuba. Uh, later moved with her family to Jacksonville, Florida. 
so she grew up, she was always a star, right? She was always doing acting. She was um, active in, in, beauty pa in beauty pageants. After high school, she ended up moving to New York City with her sister and adopted this stage name, Ponzel, Ponzel. And so her and her sister were actually pretty successful. Um, Athalia became a model. She was, she um, was a model for a lot of, like, name brand stuff. She promoted shampoo, toothpaste, was in a lot of commercials. Um, she was a Chevy girl. Oh, really? Um, she was even on, on, uh, in a musical comedy that ran on Broadway for a few weeks in 1942. And she was also a hostess, or, like, I think she was, yeah, I think she was the hostess on... A game show, a game show called Winner Takes All. Oh, that's cool. Have you heard of that? No. I, I never have. But she was um, getting her money, and she was gorgeous, beautiful, tall, bombshell, blonde, absolutely beautiful. She um, even dated Joseph Kennedy Jr. at one point. I think they were engaged at one point, but I'm not sure. There are some conflicting answers about that. But she was the kind of 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 star that had points in, in gossip columns. Like people were like, Athelia Ponzel is currently dating, you right. know, um, Joseph Kennedy Jr. And she it's, stars it's like, and blah, um, blah, blah, blah. And like, I, was, I saw a, a people, I don't remember who it was. It was like some celebrity getting married. And then it was like, I don't remember why I clicked on it, but the beginning of it was like, the guests at the wedding enjoyed this dish and this dish, and like this, is, and it, it was like really funny. But yeah, like, very mundane. Yeah. Um. So. And no, this is uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Once you hit thirty plus, your career as a model kind of yoinks. It's different nowadays, I'd say. Um. But people were very, still are, it's it's a very judgmental business. It's right. difficult to stay relevant in, especially during that time period. They're all looking for the new it girl. Right. You know, you're not the new it girl if you've been around for 10 years. Yeah. she's She also had a kind of reputation as the, like, uh, she was, you know, pretty bratty, uh, the bitch of New York, um... She lost a lot of money at one point, burned a lot of opportunities, and one of my sources was City Confidential, and I mean, it was fine, but they were very, it was a little misogynistic. It yeah. was, they were very, it was annoying. They were like, they were like, she got bitter and old and ugly, and she <laughs> moved to Florida, and right. like, I, it was annoying. But she did move to a white stucco mansion in St. Augustine, Florida in 1972, and it was there that she she struggled to to fit in, right? So let's talk about St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, so this is early 70s, Southern Florida Beach Town, and it's actually one of the oldest in America. I, I didn't know this. It was mm. founded in 1565 by a Spanish admiral. It's the oldest, like, like populated, like, living city of European origin in the United States. Lots of tourists, lots of retirees. Uh, rich people everywhere, and there was lots of old historic mansions and Spanish-style houses. It was kind of um, a mix of, of rich people, politicians, and socialites. And then on the other side was, like, the southern, like, Confederate flag-waving, you know, guys in their mm. trucks. So 
it was actually a pretty dangerous city during the 70s. Um, there was a lot of political tensions that went along with violence. Mm. So um, Athalia began, she did a little bit of real estate, began selling some real estate. Eventually her, her license lapsed. She tried to go back to school, but she never really got in the groove. She um, was an activist. She did dabble in politics. She joined a lot of clubs. She was actually in the DAR at one point, the um, Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, so at this, okay, so at this time in history, like I kind of said before, women they had their place, you know, especially in, in the South, especially in like, you know, the swamps of freaking Southern Florida. Lindsley, um, she was outspoken. She did her own thing. She was independent and people didn't really like that. She could be, she was described as intimidating. Uh, she was described as having an attitude. Right. As when you're a man, you're assertive. Stirring, when you're a woman, you're like a bitch. Yeah. Right. Stir the pot. Lots of people thought she was a troublemaker, and some people said that she earned her own death. There was... The reaction of the people to her death was... And this is from, like, both City Confidential and the book, and I don't know... It's it's pretty a, subject, a subjective thing, you know? Um, but there were definitely people out there who, like, didn't care. Like, mm -hmm. she got what was coming, stuff like that. Um, but once you hear what happened... That shit makes me sick. Like, nobody deserves to right. be murdered. Right. Yeah, to be clear, no human being deserves to be clear. To die. <laughs> um, Just to be clear. So she actually um, was living with her sick mother, who she was taking care of, Margarita Fetter. She was her caretaker 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um... Margarita was very elderly, and she even had trouble just, like, getting dressed and, like, going to the bathroom and stuff like that. Um, so she did take care of her until her mother passed. She met James Jinx Lindsley in 1973. So James Lindsley was the former mayor, uh, but his friends described him as a chain smoker who drank too much. He had been married twice before to the same woman named Lillian, who was a dancer, uh, their son died in, uh, their son, Danny, died in a motorcycle accident in 1966, and then his wife, Lily, died in a car accident in 71. Oh so that's kind of where he earned his nickname, Jinx. Oh, okay. Um, and that was on New Year's Day, 71, and James was actually at the wheel. Um, hmm. James and Athalia married only after a few months. They didn't know each other that long before they tied the knot. But they didn't get along that well. There were lots of marital difficulties. Um, Athalia said to her sister Geraldine that James was, quote, a leech and a liar. Uh, Geraldine was also the beneficiary, the beneficiary to Athalia's will. And James would get nothing. And, he, like, he didn't have, even have the key to her house. Like, they, lived, they actually lived separately. Hmm. Um, they had some trouble selling um, Athalia's, Athalia's house. But they also didn't... They kind of clashed. They had, um, even if they did live together, it probably would not have gone well. Yeah. And furthermore, they both had some pretty recent difficulties in their life. Like, Athalia's mother died a little bit after the wedding. James had lost the campaign to the county commissioner, and he hadn't lost in decades, so he was kind of down on his luck. And Athalia hadn't worked full-time in years, and James was, at that point, he, like, lost a resource of, of income, so they consolidated their income. And, like I said, they were both, did some, they were both realtors, but 
the 70s were a really bad time for real estate. Right. Um, so there wasn't much income coming there either. Her sister Geraldine said that she didn't talk much about difficulties actually with Lindsley. Um, and it was clear that they did love each other. She was with him every day, skipped work once a week to spend time together. Um, but like I said, James and Athalia did live separately. Uh, he lived by the water and she lived on Marine Street. And they fought about property and possessions and very lots of bickering. So let's talk about the day of the murder. Picture it. January 23rd, 1974. St. Augustine, Florida. He stole my thing. You said my, my thing that I stole from... Uh, Sophia. Sophia, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Picture it. <laughs> Sicily. Okay. Athalia Ponza Lindsley is found dead on her front porch by her neighbors, the McCormicks. Oh, my God. She was nearly decapitated. <gasps> she was hacked to death in broad daylight. What? Blood everywhere. Out all over the, the porch on the walls. She was only wearing one shoe. Her skirt was hiked up. She had severed fingers, defense wounds. She died quickly, according to the, to the autopsy. Her uh, carotid artery was sliced open, severed, oh bled out. Eventually, a crowd formed. Patty Stanford, a neighbor, heard the screams. She was... She thought, she thought someone got run over because Marine Street was actually like a pretty busy thoroughfare. Um, her daughter, Patricia, thought it was kids playing around. And once police arrived on the scene, Sergeant Dominic Nicolo, he was one of the many officers on the scene. He, um, along with, oh, what is his name? Deputy Sheriff. I'll get his names in here somewhere. Um, took over the case. The one of the neighbors called James and was like, "Hey, you need to get over here right now." Um and the police botched the investigation. They messed up the crime scene for sure. The murder weapon wasn't found at the scene. Um it I mean it wasn't at the scene, but it wasn't found at the scene. Um it was described as a quote, a crime of just pure hate. People were walking through the yard, climbing over the hedges, crime scene totally destroyed there were people were walking through the house bloody footprints what um police Classic. the police officer ordered an ambulance attendant to wash away the blood <gasps> yeah what fucked up how many times how many fucking times and sometimes it's very intentional of course but how many times have we seen an investigation where they and it's a mystery because come on yeah secure yeah. the crime scene and then we don't know and we don't know if like if it was intentional or not. True. I mean, when the incompetence gets to that level where you're literally washing away the evidence immediately after you discover the crime, like, that's pretty, you know. All three suspects were involved with the city. One was oh, really? a police officer. So. Oh, okay. And we never know. Uh, Richard O. Watson, who eventually became the prosecutor, he commented, he said he was pissed about how the police were handling the case. It was This was an extreme... This was extreme. It is extreme, period. Mm -hmm. But it was also extreme for the town, right? At that time, they didn't even have their own crime scene unit. Mm -hmm. um, and they had to call over to Jacksonville. And there was one eyewitness who came forward. 18-year-old uh, Locke McCormick. And he was one of the neighbors. So he described hearing loud, like, snapping sounds. He described it as, like, clapping noises. He saw a white man wearing a white dress shirt and dark slacks, brown gray hair, and he could he was like I I believe he was upstairs. He and he's they're like neighbors like looking out the window and he could see like his arm moving 
up and down. And allegedly, he shouted to his mother, quote, Mr. Stanford is hitting Mrs. Ponzel, unquote. Allegedly. So let's talk about our main man. No, fuck Alan Stanford. Let's talk about Alan Stanford. He was the, he was neighbor, uh, county manager, and he showed up around 7 p.m. So when, you know, there's a big crowd, he's like, what's going on? When is his neighbors is said, you know, um, if is dead, he says, he says, was she shot or was she cut? <laughs> Jesus. I know. Uh, and like I said, um, Locke McCormick said it was Mr. Stanford who was hitting Mrs. Ponzel. Walter Ar- Arnold, a defense attorney, said the cops looked at one suspect and no one else. Uh, but that's... I, I, dis- I personally disagree with that. Uh, police records do prove this false. There was actually plenty of follow-up and, and documentation. So it's kind of interesting when I hmm. was listening to the book. They did a lot of interviews, a lot of follow-ups. They went really deep, but they really fucked up the crimes. Yeah. It was, and I think actually the St. John's County Sheriff's Office also took over the investigation. Um, so maybe there was more professionalism mm-hmm. there. But and sometimes um, it can also be like the the tension between two investigating agencies when they're trying to decide who has you know, the, the right exactly of way. That is right, yeah. And s- sometimes evidence can be, or, you know, different things can happen in that tension, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sergeant Dominic Niccolo talked about how, you know, they had to work together. Right. There was no choice. They had to work together. Um, so, you know, obviously there was a lot of error, um, but they did get a lot of things right. There were over a thousand pages of interviews and notes and depositions and evidence. Uh, like I said, St. John's County Sheriff's Office showed up. They showed up around 8 o'clock that night to take over the investigation. So, here, here. Uh, County Sheriff Dudley Garrett launched street-by-street sweep of the city, interviewed hundreds of people, documented everything. He believed the crime could not happen without bothering others nearby. Right. Uh, she was found pretty quickly. And he determined that the murder weapon was a machete because of the depth of the cuts. These cuts were clean, and they were long. Um, They started combing through records, and they looked at anyone who was arrested with a machete in their possession. Note, and I didn't know that this... I was like, a machete? Oh, you're going to find the person? It's a fucking machete. No, this is Florida. Lots of people Mm. had machetes for trimming palm fronds and vines and bushes. It was a thing. And rumors, they even went... They even investigated rumors, Um, the most popular one being that it was James Lindsley and he did it in a drunken rage. Uh, James Lindsley did have a violent temper and people really thought that he was capable of killing her. Mm. And, you know, they didn't have the greatest relationship. And eventually there was an old machete found in the back of his truck as well. So that day, the timeline of that day. So Athalia went out to eat with James um, they were planning on celebrating the Chinese New Year. That day they went shopping together, um, and then they made plans to meet up again later for dinner. Athalia went home to feed the dogs, and we'll talk about her zoo. I mean, it's not a zoo, but she had, I think she had two goats, like Menagerie. seven dogs, and there oh, was wow. a blue jay that she was, like, nursing back to health. Uh-huh. Um, so she went out to to take care of all of that, and... Athalia was seen leaving James's real estate office that day around 5.35 p.m. to go home to feed her dogs and the bird. The plan was to lock up, uh, put a light on in the house to make it seem like someone was home, and head over to James's place. 
So James's alibi. He, meanwhile, was at his office, or he, yeah, he left his office. Um, two eyewitnesses confirmed seeing him leave. He actually spoke to some people before he, like, went over, bought cough drops at the drugstore, spoke to some people. His car was seen there. And then he went to go get some milk. Then he um, arrived home around 6 o'clock. Um, his neighbor also confirmed that uh, James arrived between 6 and 6.30. There is about 15 to 25 minutes unaccounted for, but it's kind of a stretch, though, to say he like went over, killed his wife, and came back in that time. And he did take a polygraph test, and he passed. But that doesn't really mean anything. Um, yeah. his, I didn't even mention polygraph in mine because it's so fucking meaningless. It doesn't even, yeah. His stories never varied. Uh, furthermore, so many witnesses saw him that they were, and they were all unrelated people, that it, like, didn't make sense for, like, them to, like, conspire together to create an alibi. And all in all, the police weren't looking at the husband. Uh, Frank Upchurch Jr. was hired to provide def defense for another suspect. This one more likely. And his story kept changing. This is our... This is County Manager Alan Griffith Stanford Jr. <gasps> Athalia had an ongoing feud. And mm. when I say feud, a fucking feud. And I'm... We're getting into this, okay? Um, he had threatened her life. And there was there was the, the trail of blood that was found starting at the front porch where her body lay ended in the Stanford's backyard. Hmm. Um, he also borrowed a machete from the town, but he never returned it. And and he was identified by Locke McCormick. Um, February fifteenth, nineteen seventy four. A little little less than a month later, there was a blood stained plastic bag. That was discovered in a swamp near a shipyard. The bag had a watch, a machete, and a pair of blood-soaked trousers in it. The blood on the clothes matched Athalia, and the clothes allegedly belonged to Alan Stanford. The machete was indeed property of the St. Augustine Road and Highway Maintenance, where Stanford actually borrowed materials often. And, you know, he's the county engineer, you know? Uh, the, the department had a certain paint, like on on that they used on their machetes to identify them that that's like their property and that's how they knew that it belonged to the town mm. but why her neighbor why alan stanford so let's talk about this dispute it began with athalia's seven barking dogs howling at all hours of the day and all hours of the night Note that Marine Street, where she lived, was a loud place anyway. Like, the hospital was right down the street. There were, you know, ambulances in and out. Uh, they, you know, the main street they lived on was busy, thoroughfare cars all the time. There weren't any bushes in between the houses. The houses were pretty close together. Athalia was always the center of gossip. Um, even then, neighbors joked about her all the time. Uh, McCormick and uh, Stanford... The two neighbors filed a formal complaint in October of 1972. Note that they that only their side of the story was documented, and they portrayed her as a crazed neighbor who disturbed the peace. She eventually was fined fifty dollars, but she never showed up in court. Um, she was she she ended up um, in the end she ended up boarding four of her seven dogs, but the neighbors were still annoyed. Rosemary McCormick uh, initiated a warrant for Athalia's arrest in April of 1973 for not going to court and that was three days before her mother died uh and patty stanford wrote a long detailed letter to um the police department instead athalia tried to so 
Thalia went to the husbands. She just she's decided to discredit the husbands, which was weird because it was like the wives who were home all day and like complaining. Definitely, there was definitely more behind the dispute between Alan Stanford and Thalia. So it's also possible that if Thalia was unwell, she had been she had been taking care of her elderly elderly mother for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends said she looked gaunt in pictures. She was distraught and she was nervous. The day of her death, according to James, that Thalia really had to go to the bathroom and was in like such a hurry that she left her keys in the door and her groceries on the floor. Geraldine found a tampon and a paper bag in the bathroom trash, which was weird because Thalia was fifty six. Um, possible postmenopausal breakthrough bleeding. That's what that could mean, mm. which is very serious. That's like a sign of like, um, not ovarian. Is it ovarian cancer or cancer? Okay, cancer. Um, very. It's it's very serious. So yeah. So there was a lot of changes in her life. You know, she moved to a new place. She got married. Her mother died. Uh, all kinds of stuff. So this dispute went on. When Athalia hired someone to cut down a pecan tree between her house and the Stanford's house, uh, then planted 10-foot-high bamboo on the corner of their driveway, uh, and Petty got the city to remove it as a visual obstruction, Athalia wrote a letter to the commanding officer of the National Guard talking about Colonel McCormick, and no one knows what the letter said, but it couldn't have been a, like a compliment, you know? Um, Weird. And she then she began focusing on Alan Stanford. So, and this is wild. She went to the news office of the St. Augustine Record, uh, got one of the people there to help her dig up records about Alan, but, like, the rep there, like, declined. Um, so she left. She was pissed. But eventually she did find plenty of information about Mr. Stanford. She started rumors about him, said that he was getting... Um, or that he was using money for the county for, like, personal projects. Um, and eventually a prosecutor cleared Alan of that charge. But Alan Stanford wasn't an innocent dude. He was fire-happy. He liked to... He liked firing people. 155% employee turnover. Uh, didn't listen <laughs> to his employees. Lots of complaints um, from the workers. They worked seven days a week. Didn't get paid overtime. And... People talked about this a lot. The, the The roads in the county were absolutely terrible. Potholes. Mm. Um, the book talked about, like... And it really, really got into the dispute. The dispute goes pretty deep. I'm not going to get into the details, but... Um, the roads were, like, dangerous. Mm. And people complained, and Ellen was really, wasn't doing much about it. Wasn't on his radar. Athalia showed up at county meetings, which were open to the public. She showed up at them all the time. Uh-huh. And she was loud, and she was ready to fight, and people hated it. Um, in, in City Confidential, um, the one commissioner was like, you know, like, she she wasn't... Uh, some of the stuff she said, like, Alan, Alan definitely deserved it. I'd probably let her go on for about ten minutes before I'd cut her off. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah. <laughs> he was like, you know, it was crazy, but, like, Ellen definitely deserved some of the stuff that she was saying. Right. Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, she called out his credentials, noted his ridiculously high salary, which is true. He got a raise, like, way higher than everybody else. And she called him out on it. She called him out um, all the time. You know, a true bad bitch. She criticized where taxpayer dollars went, like, you know, complained about the streets. Uh, 
citizens complain about Alan as well. Athalia was at these meetings all the time. Like I said, she wanted Alan fired. She wanted him out. Um, Stanford fought back. He called Athalia a vicious, evil woman, woman and threatened to fix her. Uh, Geraldine said that Athalia told her that Stanford actually did threaten to kill her. Um, James, the husband, was also suspicious about Alan. He also had a rep for having a temper. Athalia said that Alan put sugar in her gas tank one time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and James confronted him about it. Like, she was out of town and he poured fucking sugar in her gas tank. Like, how Jeez. petty is that? Yeah. Um, so, the day of the death, January 23rd, 1974, 4.15 p.m., Alan Stanford got two visitors from the Florida Department of Professional and Occupational Regulations. These investigators were from the Florida State Board. Athalia had sent a handwritten letter to the director of the board one year prior talking about Stanford signing documents as the county engineer, which he was not. He failed the test. So um, the book kind of goes into this as well. Stanford's father was was an engineer and he tried to follow his footsteps, failed the test, um, uh, was was planning on retaking it, but never did. But he was out here signing documents pretending to be a civil engineer, which is, like, super illegal. Um, he he explained to the investigators, like, there was there were ongoings between him and Athalia, like, eh, you know, this is, this is a thing that's been going on. Um, investigators from the board noted that Alan wasn't, like, super angry or acted like he was going to get revenge. He was almost, like, too cool for the situation. So, mm. like, imagine, like, some high-up execs come in and is like, look, this woman wrote us a letter about you, like, signing documents illegally. Like, what's going on here? So, like, you, if, especially if it's someone you've been having a feud with, you'd be like, what right. the... F- sorry? Like, she what? Like, uh, you'd think it would... Ins- inspire some some rage but but i mean we don't we don't know the state investigators planned on interviewing athalia the next day but you know that night yeah she was killed ironically on the day of her death the dogs were locked in the garage and the police didn't even notice them until they Hmm. searched the garage um so eventually uh alan stanford was arrested for the murder of Athalia Ponzo Lindsay, Lindsley. But we will get into the trial and its insanity in part two. Cool. Sounds good. Yay! This was very that crazy was already. That short, right? Ooh. No. No, not at all. I guess I could have done it. No, I could have done it in one. There's a lot about the trial. And then, spoiler alert, there is a second attack. And we'll get into oh. that as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for listening, y'all. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Mario, do you have any weird shit in the news? Not re- No, not really. I but I did want to talk about the 39 bodies yeah. that were found in a truck in Essex. What the fuck? I, I did know. retweet it. Everybody go check out the story if you haven't heard of it already. I read most of the story. Um, this guy was from Northern Ireland, but they said that the bodies were transferred from Bulgaria. Well, the right? it's unclear. The lorry was registered in Bulgaria, okay. but they don't know if it was actually at, like coming from Bulgaria directly. They have, um, but uh, I think they're pretty sure that it uh, that it did. But yeah, it's not clear like what actually happened. But the guy was arrested on suspicion of murder, so... 39. Insane. Um, So my sources were the Wikipedia page, Athalia Ponzel Lindsley, 
which doesn't have a lot. Like, I feel like I could write up that Wikipedia page. There's a lot out there about it. I was surprised. Um, the book by Elizabeth Randall, Murder in St. Augustine, The Mysterious Death of Thalia Ponzo Lindsley. And uh, I think it was season three, episode five of City Confidential. Um, I think it was called The Politician and the Socialite or something like that. So- something super cliche. Something cliche. Yeah, of course. Got to But, be. uh, wild. Yeah. Wild. Pretty Absolutely crazy. Wild. So, yeah, um, follow our Instagram. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, Mario Text 30. Thank you tweeter. guys so much for listening. Yeah, thank you. We y'all. cherish y'all. We are trying to bring cherish. some better quality episodes. Right. Um, we're doing, I've well, definitely been reading a lot more books. Exactly. Like, see, I, I read a book for this episode. You're, you're listening to an audiobook. It's this, it's what it's about. Lots of long form articles. Right. And I've got so much content now that I, Reached out to the Reddit community. God yes. bless the the wonderful resource. I was like, does anybody Reddit. where y'all where y'all get your long form articles for mystery? Everyone's like, here you go. <laughs> nice. Bam. Okay. And hint hint. Oh what? I did ask for a long form article on the 1991 yogurt shop murders in right. Austin, Texas. So been stay tuned for long been coming as a topic. I think that's one we've been talking about since before we started doing that the one's, pod. Oh, that one is so sad. Yeah. It is brutal. It is bizarre. It is a true cold, cold case. Anyway. 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 Bye. Bye. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.